Hello, this is the Online Resilience Podcast with me, Louisa Street, and Professor Andy Fippin. We're discussing all aspects of young people's online lives and giving practical advice on how to support the young people you work with. Music is by Rue Pestel. Okay, hello and welcome to another episode of the Online Resilience Podcast. Today, we're actually revisiting some of our earlier um, topics uh, because some of the sound quality wasn't brilliant in those early days and our our recording setup has got a lot better and our editing has got a lot better. Um, And so we're we're kind of going back to that. So you may have heard our original um, podcast all about the harmful behaviour category in the online resilience tool. Um, But as we are relaunching the tool um, and we've got some new behaviours, we're revisiting what each category means. Uh, We're going to start by looking at the um, extremism category. Um, So the new tool is organised by the types of behaviour and then they're organised into categories of harmful, potentially harmful and not harmful. Um, And if you've seen the tool, you will have seen that everything in the extremism category is harmful. Um, Hopefully that kind of makes sense. But we wanted to explore it in a bit more detail because there is a little bit of nuance to that. Um, Andy, you've got a really good example of why that nuance is important when thinking about extremism. Do you want to kick us off with that? Yeah, um, obviously we've we've listed stuff in the extremism category as as harmful but um i think it's you know the whole idea of this tool is that it encourages conversation and it encourages you know evidence-based decision making i think that's a really important thing well within any safeguarding decision but particularly within on- online issues um and I, I think a lot of schools and colleges now have monitoring systems in place they have a statutory duty to do it which will pick up a lot of the keywords associated with extremism. But the example that um, that sticks in my mind was um, I was contacted by a colleague who said their uh, adoptive son um, has been the subject of a prevent referral at their primary school. Um, so prevent referrals at primary schools is uh, interesting in itself anyway. So I said, OK, um, what happened? Now, this young man is a... Uh, he was born in the Kurdish region of Turkey. Um, he's of Kurdish descent. Um, and he was encouraged by his class teacher. Uh, reading between the lines from what my colleague was saying, he, is, he has a tendency to be a little bit um, high energy and a little bit disruptive in class. So they wanted to give him a project that he could focus on. So he was asked if he would build a presentation for his classmates around Kurdish culture. Um, so he got on with that with... Um, with some enthusiasm. Um, and then it turned out that the monitoring system at the school was triggered because um, one of the things he searched for was Peshmerga. Right. Are, um, you know, a part of the Kurdish military um, and have been involved in um, actions against ISIS in the past. Um, so Peshmerga triggered the monitoring system. Now you'd hope at that point that with a little bit of investigation, um it would be okay well he's been asked to do this he's come across this word he's searched for this word to get a bit more information about the kurdish military mm-hmm. that's not a prevent referral however mm. because the monitoring system had been triggered um the head teacher decided that it had to be a prevent referral because it had been triggered for extremism and the next thing that happened was the young man who was 10 at the time 
was sat in um, the head teacher's office with the head teacher, the deputy head, his adoptive parents, and the prevent leave for Devon and Cornwall police. Right. Which strikes me as somewhat problematic. Yeah. And, um, you know, we talk a great deal about wanting young people to be confident they can disclose concerns or harms and things. I can't imagine that young person would disclose anything ever again in that school <laughs> because they'd be terrified. And, you know, I, I know or knew the, this was a few years ago now, I knew the prevent leave for Devon and Cornwall police. They'd have been there in there about five minutes. They'd have said, don't be so ridiculous. And they'd have left. <laughs> yeah. However, that doesn't. Um, detract from the fact that this young man was presented with a uniformed police officer asking them questions about what they've been looking at online yeah so so really really problematic and you know there's a couple of companies I know and I've advised in the past who provide monitoring solutions and if they provide a managed solution so that's where they are providing a cloud-based solution and they will tell the school if alerts have happened they have sometimes made decisions to not raise an alert even though the monitoring system has picked up on it because they don't think it's in the young person's interest. Okay. Think, uh, uh, you know, th there was one case they talked about where um, it was triggered for um, uh, sexual content, but it was very clear when they actually looked at this young person's activity, they were exploring things around gender and sexuality, and right. they didn't think that um, it would be in the young person's interest, because clearly they were doing it in school, because maybe they weren't able to do it at home because of yeah. excessive monitoring at home. So you know they made a very sensible and progressive decision not to inform the school that if schools have in-house monitoring it's just something to be aware of yeah definitely and I think you know we talk a lot in the training and and I think in this podcast as well about the importance of context when you're looking at these things I think this is a really good example of that um I can remember when I was at school many years ago and um, we were asked to do a presentation about someone we found inspirational and a group of boys in my year decided to do their presentation about Hitler. Now, this was, you know, back in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I don't think Prevent had even been conceived of. Um, and if it had, it certainly wouldn't have been thinking particularly about the far right. But had they you know if they were to do that now that might well trigger some of those things and they might find themselves on watch lists because they'd been googling all of the speeches that Hitler had given and the point that they made at the end of the presentation was actually we recognize that this person was was really bad but he was a very inspirational speaker and that's what we wanted to reflect and you know you're always particularly with teenagers you're always going to get those young people who want to be contrary who will pick things that are shocking for shock value mm -hmm. and as a professional you have to unpick whether you think that that is you know because they're trying to be shocking for the sake of being shocking or whether they're actually sort of agreeing with some of the points that mm -hmm. perhaps they're um regurgitating yeah i think you know you have to assume some people want to be edgelords and they'll yeah. <laughs> they'll pull out the freedom of speech and the freedom of expression stuff, which you know we talked about on other podcasts. But but yeah, it's it's worth an exploration. Yeah. yeah, and I mean in the extremism category, one of the one of the behaviours is repeating extremist views read about online, which mm. you know in both of those cases people may well have done. But you're going to know as the professional whether that context makes it makes sense that they're repeating those views because they're saying this is what this particular group believe mm -hmm. or whether they're saying 
oh yeah, I read this, and so it must be yeah. true. There was an, I, I dealt with another case a while ago about a, a young man who had a quite a big TikTok following, and um, he was putting out some fairly nasty content about sexual activity with underage children. Mm. Um, and again, you know, the first point Paul is there: does this young man actually have a sexual interest in young children? Because that account could be um, uh, reported, and he could end up with a visit from the police as a result of that. And the, the college dealt with it well, and um, as a result of a number of complaints from uh, the students to TikTok, the account was taken down anyway. So, <laughs> which again, you know, show, shows the value in in doing things in a in a, a tech aware way rather yeah. than just going, oh my god, what are we going to do about this? Well, <laughs> yeah. TikTok will take that sort of thing down. They are famously conservative yeah. i think the other thing you know just in terms of the extremism stuff and and the technology is that the counterterrorism internet referral unit list which is used for a lot of these technologies is quite opaque and quite subjective um okay. so it, it's it's based upon the decision of someone to add that to the list so i think you know do a bit of more investigation rather mm. than going it's been triggered we need to do a prevent referral now yeah see what's in there because um yeah it's it's one of those areas that's not subject to freedom of information and uh, uh yeah it's, it's difficult to find out how they make the decisions yeah about why something gets added and i mean if if people are interested in learning a bit more about prevent there is a podcast which i'd highly recommend and as you're listening to this podcast i assume that maybe you like podcasts um and it's called the trojan horse affair um, and it sort of explores how Prevent came about and some of the kind of political machinations that were happening at the time. Um, and it was actually recommended to me by someone who works in Prevent. So I feel mm-hmm. like I'm not not being um, unduly biased against the system by recommending that. I think, I think with a lot of these things, there's usefulness in them, but don't use it as a black and white tool. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, so the next um, behaviour that we're going to look at a little bit um, sort of actually appears twice in the tool, and it's to do with a prolonged period of upset or anger after either having a device removed or after gaming. Um, So with younger children, you might expect if they're playing with an iPad and you just take it away from them, you might expect that they might get a bit angry about that. They might get a bit upset about that. Um, And similarly, with young people of any age, if they've been playing a game and they lose, they might have a bit of a a bit of a tantrum afterwards. Um, But we've worded it slightly differently in the tool to say it's about that prolonged period of upset or anger. Um, and that means that it would go on for longer than you might expect. So, again, the the sort of context is going to be quite important. If you know a young person fairly well and you know that they might throw the controller across the room if they lose a game, but then 20 minutes later, they'll be quite happily sitting, you know, watching TikTok or doing something else. Then whilst that outburst isn't good, it's probably quite normal for them Um if they're still angry half an hour later, then that could be a sign that, you know, something more problematic is going on. Andy, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think the, the other thing you haven't mentioned is, is just have a little bit more of an exploration around the nature of the withdrawal of the device, shall we say? You know, yeah. if you're <laughs> 90% of the way through a level and someone marches into your room and goes, you've been playing on that too long and switches it off. <laughs> 
I wouldn't say it's it's justified aggression, but it's quite frustrating when someone does that. You know, if if we talk to parents about this sort of thing, it's like just tell them that ten more minutes. Don't just march in there and switch it off and tough luck. And I don't really care about your game <laughs> because these things are important, particularly if if someone considers themselves to be a gamer. These things are important. But yes, the 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 prolonged period of time afterwards and the withdrawal and things. It, I mean, gaming addiction and while it is a defined mental health condition now within the big bible of mental health conditions dsm-5 um it's a very difficult thing to to diagnose and yeah. you know as, as you say a rage quit is one thing um <laughs> and by rage quit we mean someone who will throw the controller across the room and, or, or as i was told by one student took out the the disc from his xbox and started biting it because he was so angry he's been beaten at fifa <laughs> Um, but you know they, they can reflect on that and go that's stupid it's it's when they are it is a prolonged period of aggression or or upset mm. and they're not acknowledging that that's a dull thing to do as well you know yeah so um so yeah it, it is again clearly there are some problematic behaviors there but if you've just got someone for example you say parent drops off a young person in the morning and goes oh they're terrible if if i ever get them off their gaming they they won't talk to me for the rest of the night or something maybe also do a little bit more of an investigation with that parent <laughs> well, yeah <laughs> are, are you just like literally unplugging it at the wall when they're halfway through something or are you telling them how long they're allowed to play for and, and yeah. helping them manage that time yeah definitely and i think also something that a lot of professionals and i've i've been guilty of this myself that we fall into is this trap of um having more perhaps more red flags when the game itself appears violent so mm-hmm. a lot of professionals will say to me oh all of the young people in my in my tutor group are playing gta and that's a really violent game it's age restricted they shouldn't be playing it i'm really worried about it and yet every time i talk to young people about gaming um they are clear that the game that causes the most anger management problems <laughs> is fifa yeah. it's it's not gta it's Has not the violence yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh well, well that and minecraft you know oh, if, if, really? if someone trashes your minecraft village that can spill over into violence in the playground the next day afterwards okay yeah. that's interesting yeah. And, you know, I think it's really easy to look at games like FIFA and Minecraft and say they're at the less concerning end of the spectrum. We're not going to pay any attention to them because we've got kids playing GTA and those are the ones we're going to be worried about. But actually, it may be that the ones playing GTA, you know, if they lose. I mean, I, I, I've i not played GTA myself for probably 15 years but the way I understand it is if you lose, you just go back a stage. It's not like if yeah. you lose a football match and then you've kind of dropped down in the rankings and, you know, those those games which are cumulative can perhaps mm-hmm. have more. Um, the stakes are higher, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I believe at the start of our, our book about the Head Start project, we do talk about a specific case where um, uh, a DSL says they, they saw someone being violent and they, they'd heard they were playing violent video games, therefore it must be the violent video game that caused it. And um, couldn't really deviate them from that opinion even <laughs> explaining that look, there's literally 40 years of research trying to show causation and they always fail to show causation they were convinced um, yeah which is, which is an interesting mindset to take you know again going back to the fact we we talk a great deal about evidence-based reactions and mm-hmm. evidence-based responses and needing to be informed based upon evidence not i reckon that 
Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I'm a big fan of the correlation does not imply causation, which for mm-hmm. anyone who isn't aware of basically says just because two things um, happen coincidentally, it doesn't mean that there's any um, underlying cause. And one of the examples of this is that um, the um, the number of pirates has um, increased in line with increasing global temperatures. <laughs> so clearly, pirates are to blame for climate change. And, you know, I think that is something that, that we can kind of say, there might, there might be correlation, there might be um, young people who are violent at school or who are aggressive at school playing violent video games, but that doesn't tell us yeah. that it's the game that's causing the violence. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think one that um, I, I'm sure I've talked about before was a, a news headline a while ago saying in a thousand grooming cases, kick messenger was used as if there's something problematic with kick messenger where, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, there are so many variables in that scenario. I am sure you could probably find similar clothing worn by in a thousand grooming cases or whatever. You, you look at the number of downloads of kick messenger, it was about 300 million. You know, Kit Messenger wow. was a, a messaging app like WhatsApp. It's no longer around. So those those implied causations are, are completely unhelpful because if you see that headline and then as a parent you go, my kid's got Kit Messenger. I'm going to demand what's on it now, and they're probably just messaging their mates and things as well. You, yeah. You know, a similar headline might be in a thousand grooming cases they were wearing jeans. Yeah. Um, no one's then going to be screaming that we need to ban denim. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that could be the the underlying cause. Um, double denim. Well, yeah, the the old Canadian tuxedo. It's my favourite look. Um, excellent. Um, so yeah, I mean, with both of those, we can kind of clearly see the importance of context and the importance of having those conversations. And as you say, it might be a case. Um, with the gaming example of having a chat with parents about how they manage um, behavior around gaming. Um, Something that we've talked about on this podcast before and that we've talked about in the training. And, uh, you know, I think (laughs) quite a lot of the time we talk about is that of all of the young people that we speak to on this project, no one has ever said, I don't think I should have any rules around my yeah. digital life. Children, yeah. young people, they all understand that there need to be rules in place. So, you know, it's not it's not a case of us saying, just let them get on with it. Um, mm-hmm. They they understand the need for rules and, and having those really clear rules um, is really beneficial. It might, might be that at home those rules aren't as clear as they could be, which could help. Or it could be that, you know, if parents are struggling with a teenager's aggression or, or even a child's aggression, they might need more support generally. It might be a mm-hmm. sort of sign of a, of a bigger issue. Yes. Um, should we move on to the next one? I think so. OK, so the next behaviour that we're going to look at um, as, a harm, as an example of a harmful behaviour is the excessive or compulsive use of pornography. So within the tool, these are two distinct behaviours. Um, compulsive use of pornography is classed as harmful for every age group. Um, and we've sort of defined compulsive as something that's getting in the way of the young person mm-hmm. doing what might normally be expected. 
Then for excessive use of pornography or excessively watching pornography, um, it's harmful up to 15. Um, and then for the 16 to 18 age group, we've put it as potentially harmful. Andy, do you want to talk a bit about what the difference between excessive and compulsive might be? I think, uh, again, we keep on coming back to this, this needs to have a conversation. I think compulsive is, you know, the, the person that's looking at it at the back of the class in tutor time and then having a lesson and then going out break time and then mm -hmm. talking to their friends about what they've seen and, and you know it becomes something where rather than interacting with peers they are sat in a corner uh, watching porn or, or something it, it's something that they don't seem to have much control over they, they need the dopamine hit and um, yeah excessive is obviously for, for the vast majority of age groups excessive you know is is looking at it a lot um we'd really rather that that young people weren't accessing pornography but we know they are and particularly when they get to older teens it's it's not an unusual thing um but again it's it's asking or exploring why they are doing that yeah and we'll do a separate um session on, on mostly harmful anyway but yeah. um I, I it is one of those things where because of the nature of the content um there is generally speaking a lot of um discomfort around it and even people i've worked with in this area for, for years some people are just like no pornography is disgusting and it should be banned and you mm. well <laughs> there's a reason pornography exists is because loads and loads of people consume it yeah so <laughs> um you know we, we we ought to have those sensible and mature conversations about it but it's really you know, if you're talking about excessive, where they're accessing it for hours and hours and hours and, and, and not doing anything else, that's bleeding into compulsive stuff anyway. But it, it, yeah. I, I do think you need to have those conversations. But Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I think the way that you might recognise the difference between compulsive and excessive would be that thing of are they are they watching pornography at school? That would seem to be compulsive. Are they doing it when they're queuing up to vote in the House of Commons, for example? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, like, and I mean, this is another thing about harmful behaviours is um, there are a lot of behaviours that we might see in adults, um, which are potentially harmful or harmful. Um, we don't want to be holding young people to a higher standard than the rest of mm -hmm. society. So, you know, whilst, as you say, we might not want young people to be watching pornography, um, it is quite normalized within our society it's very accessible um so we can't kind of say that just general watching pornography is is a problem it's when it it might be starting to impact on other things um and if it is you know if it's happening at school or at college um if they've kind of dropped out of sports teams and mm -hmm. seeing friends, then that's really clearly causing problems and could be a sign that actually they might need some help and support to cut down or stop using in the mm -hmm. same as, you know, that support would be offered with any other sort of addictive behaviour. Excessive, I guess, um, the way that you are likely to know that it's excessive it's probably going to be if the young person tells you because yeah. that probably isn't so much going to be happening in public and it might be that they come to you if you're sort of working with a young person in a pastoral capacity at school or um or as in a one-to-one -one, uh scenario 
then they might say actually this is starting to affect my um enjoyment of sex whether that's solo sex or sex with a partner it might be that they feel that they can't have sex without using pornography so um again that might just be about talking about uh, how that's impacting them and and what they can do to mm-hmm. hopefully reduce the impact of that i think with with pornography in particular where the moral perspective on it can take some quite extreme views it's important to be quite factual mm. you know if you look at Scrooge for learnings um so you look at porn resource it, it encourages a, a factual discussion right? it's like you know this is a film so you know this isn't you know normal normal behavior and similar and um uh you know it's it's not some this is the the i hesitate to use the word hilarious but hilarious in that government policy of saying if we put age verification on pornography sites then we've solved the problem mm. well that just means <laughs> they have to wait till they're 18 to be consuming it if they are they won't be successful but if they are successful and having conversations with relate counselors they will talk about you know couples they've supported some of whom have good relationship with pornography some of whom have a problematic relationship with pornography if one of the partners is um deliberately staying up late so they can access pornography while the other partner goes to bed or something yeah. that's, that's you know that's a, a problematic um, use of it so it really does need a, a sensible discussion around yeah. it and not oh my god you're looking at pornography that's bad you're going to hell <laughs> yeah definitely and I think you know ideally there would be good PSHE around pornography before young people are really mm-hmm. likely to be exposed to it um you know obviously that may or may not be the case but um typically there's a lot of um quite anti-porn messages in PSHE where you know there'll be things about how it can teach young people to have unrealistic expectations of sexual performance of body image of of you know what a partner may or may not be willing to consent to um and that is i think those are important messages to teach young people about but if a young person is watching porn we shouldn't necessarily assume that it's harmful unless we're seeing that sort of compulsive or excessive mm-hmm. use of it um over a certain age and and you know if we kind of look at the tool we've organized it by age group uh watching pornography for uh any pre-puberty child is is going to be problematic um because they're not going to be looking at that for their own sexual gratification there are questions there about how they're accessing it because you can provide tools to to do a lot of blocking and and prevention at that sort of age they are Mm. useful tools to have um but yeah i think again going back to what we're saying about correlation versus causation there are a lot of problematic issues around excessive use of pornography and similar um but that doesn't necessarily mean anyone who's accessing pornography will experience those problematic issues and we need to be mindful of that otherwise if you look at for example Pornhub's traffic data otherwise we'd have massive societal problems because um there's an awful lot of that content being consumed by an awful lot of people yeah and on the whole people will consume it without experiencing problematic aspects to it so but yeah no the the, the reason i used the the house of commons example was specifically to sort of go 
if if we're going to um, be worrying about teenagers out from this, let's let's look at how our um, our leaders yeah. demonstrate responsibility in this sort of area as well. Yeah, um, I mean, it was kind of an interesting one that because I know the calls to um, have him prosecuted for harassment and things seemed a little bit excessive because it's not like he was trying to show other people, it, but it is problematic when you're queuing up something and you think, oh, I might have a quick look at that pornography. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, and I I think when you look at you know occasionally statistics will come out around um, how many people have been you know fired or or face disciplinary proceedings at work because of pornography on their work computers um i think people are incredibly complacent about that sort of thing <laughs> uh the the you know I, I, there was some pretty bad moments in early lockdown when people were still getting used to how video calls worked and i'm sure people will have seen the uh the, the, the shared screens and the open tabs and those yeah, things. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly um so yeah it's it's important to remember that as young people get to that oldest age group when they're 16 17 18 um the the sort of standards that we should expect from them should be the the standards that are normal within society mm-hmm. we shouldn't be expecting that they won't watch any pornography ever because that's probably unrealistic mm. no i think i think a lot of the upset about it generally comes from a place of someone's own belief system rather than any objective evidence-based concern yeah um and clearly there are people who have a problematic relationship with pornography but as i said if you look at the volumes of people that consume it you know if if there was a problematic causation we'd have seen a massive increase in in sexual crime in the early 2000s when it became very freely available and we really didn't no um and there have been increases in sexual crimes in more recent times, but that's generally as a result of reporting and disclosure and um, uh, police response rather than, you know, something that you can track back to increased use of pornography or whatever. Um, Definitely. Um, so just to, to wrap up a little bit, I suppose, on harmful behaviours, um, is just to think a bit about what you can do if you recognise a harmful behaviour. Um, we've got a, a little bit of advice in our um, in our tool, which you will see on the Head Start website. I suppose the first thing is to say, follow your organisation's safeguarding policy. Mm-hmm. It might not always be that you need to safeguard a young person because you've recognised a harmful behaviour. As we said, it might not be that you always have to um, do a prevent referral. But with any harmful behaviour, you're going to need to do some sort of intervention you know in the in the case of extremism it might just be chatting to that young person about what they've seen on those sites because it might have been upsetting to them it might have been shocking to them that might be the extent of the the support that you need to offer um whereas at the other end if a young person is expressing um extremist views regularly then that is going to be a case of talking to your safeguarding lead and 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 making prevent referrals as appropriate Mm-hmm. Um, so the the kind of purpose of the tool isn't to say this is what you should do it's to say these behaviors need an intervention whereas perhaps these behaviors don't need an intervention yeah. um, it's not to say that we just ignore not harmful behaviors um, but we will follow up on what you can do when you recognize not harmful behaviors uh, with another podcast soon um, Andy did you want to add anything before we um 
just to say, you know, we, we will reiterate this a lot, but as with anything safeguarding related, it, it should be contextualized to the specific incident, just because we define something as harmful in this tool, as you say, it doesn't mean call the police. Yeah. It means speak <laughs> to the young person because potentially there could be something bad going on here and yeah. you need to have some discussion. Absolutely. And if you, you know, if you speak to uh, the young person, you speak to your safeguarding lead and you're still not sure what to do, you can always contact myself or Andy. We're really happy to kind of help unpick some of those things. Um, And you'll find our email addresses in the show notes. I think probably one of the worst, we we do talk about it a lot in the tool, but one of the worst things that might happen is we end up somewhere where they go, well, it said it was harmful in your tool. So we took their phone off them. That's exactly (laughs) not what we want. We're, we're providing guidance for decisions. We're not we're not telling you how to do your job as a safeguarding professional. Absolutely. Brilliant. Um, well, we will um, end there and um, we'll be back soon with our potentially harmful podcast. That's it for another episode of the Online Resilience Podcast. If you liked it, please tell someone you know who might also enjoy it. You can share on Facebook, Twitter, or even just pop a link in an email. Thank you.